Hello, and welcome to EPR with your favorite environmental nerds, Nick and Laura. On today's episode, Nick and I discuss trying to get into the Guinness Book of World Records. We talk to Dr. Kimberly Miner about extreme environments, climate change, and permafrost. And finally, today's and finally, brought to you by Nick, space tastes like raspberries. What? <laughs> <laughs> In keep 2009. <laughs> yes, I'm going to keep reading. In 2009, <laughs> astronomers were able to identify a chemical called ethyl form formate in a big dust cloud at the center of the Milky Way. Ooh, raspberry Milky Ways. Okay. Ethyl formate is the chemical responsible for the flavor of raspberries. It also smells like rum. Interesting. How cool is that? The snozzberries taste like snozzberries. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one, I thought. No? Is it still too dad? No, is it good. dad no, science? No, no, no. All right. All right. All right. Dad science. Is that a new thing? I haven't heard that before. I just, that's what I feel like whenever I do one of these. You just made it up, dad science? Hate. Yeah, I just made it up. <laughs> <laughs> it's like when you guys jokes, don't like what it. are you talking about, dad yeah. science? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> space tastes like Nobody cares, dad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Registration is now open for NAEP's 2022 Annual Conference and Training Symposium on May 16th through 19th in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Sonny Fleming, the Environmental Conservation and Natural Resources Industry Lead for ESRI, will be delivering a keynote address to kick off the conference. She's amazing and going to be on the show next week. So it's super fun. It's such a great interview, and we're really excited for our keynote. It's going to be really great. So please check it out at www.naep.org. We also appreciate all of our awesome sponsors, and there we keep the show going. If you'd like to sponsor the show, please head over to www.environmentalprofessionalsradio.com and check out the sponsor form for details. Let's get to our segment. What would you, if you had to get in the Guinness Book of World Records, what would you want to get in there for? Well, so, okay, there's like, uh, there's ways to get in, right? Where it's basically like you have to be super weird, right? Like <laughs> grow your fingernails out for like a thousand years. Oh, God, yeah. That. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't want to, or the guy that held his arm up for like 35 years or whatever it is. <laughs> like, I don't want to be like guy who holds arm up longest. That doesn't, right? that's not for me. <laughs> so, I, but I don't know. Like, I, I'm not like, um, I just don't learn that way. Like, I, I get really excited about something. I'm like, this is really neat. Okay, I'm done. And I move on, right? Like, I don't. I feel like if you want to be in that book, you have to be like, I love matches and I'm going to put the most amount of matches into my mouth more than anyone else. <laughs> and that's how I get into the Guinness Book of World Records. Right. And then it's just, that's just not me. I'm like, matches are neat. Okay. I'll see you later. I know how they work now. You know what I mean? So. Okay. So Nick ugh. is the guy who tried the most number of Guinness Book. Yeah. Yeah. And, and didn't come anywhere close and failed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. I'm like, wait, he put how many? No, I'm not doing that. That's, that takes forever. You know? Like, uh, it's just, they're so far away. Like there's one, like the guy who held a plank for the longest, right? Like longest amount of time. And it was something like eight days or something ridiculous. Like <laughs> I'm not, I'm not doing that. I don't even want to do it for eight minutes. Are you kidding me? So yeah, there's none, there's none of those. I, I, because you got to do really crazy physical feats as well. I'm not doing those. So I don't know. about so, follow do you question. Have one? How do you know so many, I don't even know what's in the Guinness book of world record. <laughs> I can imagine well, like longest running distance or something and no, yeah, I but there's, I don't even know yeah. what's in there. I don't know why I know this, but you know, I, I had like, I got a book of it when I was younger, right? Like Guinness Book of World Records. I, like, here you go. You're a nerd. You'll like this. Um, <laughs> and uh, okay. Um, so nobody ever thought I was nerdy enough to like one. I didn't get that <laughs> one as a gift. 
Well, it was like definitely from one of my relatives. They're like, you know, it's like a, like an honor uncle or something like here, here, here's a, here's a thing that we assume kids like, you know? And I mean, I, I looked through it. So, but you, you have to like, uh, there's like official things you have to do. You have to like, literally <laughs> like uh, commission them to come out. It has to be interesting enough for them to want to come out. And then they yeah. have to officially record the thing happening. And so, yeah, a bunch of weird, random stuff. Um, we like, should like uh, to see like what is in there for environmental stuff. Maybe there's something we could like collectively do as environmental professionals. Oh man, that would be crazy. I honestly don't know. Uh, <laughs> environmental experts. Let's see. Uh, nope, that's not it. Goodness. Oh, but yeah, look it up right now, huh? Yeah, ten. I'm looking at the best <laughs> ten best uh, environmentally friendly world records. I mean, why not? Right, we're here. Oh yeah, sure. Um, okay. Let's see the largest solar powered boat. Not doing that. I am not building anything. <laughs> I'll go on it. Who's got that? That's yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Tour on Our Planet Solar is uh, apparently the name of the boat. So I don't know. I'm sure I said that wrong. But okay, yeah. So how about the largest grouping of environmental professionals on that boat? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. On, in the picture, there's only six. So if we get seven people, <laughs> done. <Yes. laughs> Oh, that's funny. Um, we're two, so we only, well, in Kara, so we only need, uh, oh my God, Matt, how many more? <laughs> yeah. Four, it's four. four. It's four, yeah. Most bottles recycled by a dog. <laughs> what? Okay, cool. I, mean, I got cats. We can do cats. Yeah, so we could do cats, but it's going to be like one bottle. It'll be it's one. Gonna, well, and gonna that's if we're like lucky. 20 years. Yeah, yeah. If we're lucky, then cats are like, I'm not recycle. I'll throw this away. Sure, but I'm not recycling bleep you know that's that's the cats <laughs> largest collection of clothes to recycle but that's from yeah it's an owner it's a company so that's the first thing just take a guess at the number of articles of clothing one million that's way less than that man and i realized oh, come on. Like, we oh. could, okay collectively as a group of environmental professionals we could do better than that i know friends work. who donate and give away like 20 pieces of clothing a week so right <laughs> So, yeah, we just need to get over 117,376 articles. Easy peasy. <laughs> yes. And I'm very excited to be a part of two thirds of it. And then. Yeah, we can remember Gab was a thrifter. We could get her back on the show and we could. Uh, oh, yeah, that's that right. Effort. Yeah, yeah. Oldest alternative fuel. That's not a record. Come on. What are we doing here? That doesn't even make sense. <laughs> Most steel cans collected in a month was like 2.6 million. That's crazy. That's so many. That is. Yeah. There's, you could see most trees planted in an hour. It's a hundred people. Planted oh, that's 40, funny. We used to do it with seagrass. <laughs> so maybe we could do most seagrass planted in an hour. You know, I don't know what the record is. Largest sculpture of plastic bags is not an environmental environmentally friendly world record. Oh. That's weird. I don't like that one. No, I don't like that one either. That's pretty much it. Those are the ones. Okay. We could totally. So how does one like say to guinness like cool we have a new one we want to add and we're going to start with two you know is there <laughs> does that... yeah i think it's like a competition like you have to like petition for it like it's not like a, they don't just go whenever anyone's like i'm gonna put like 18 hot dogs in your mouth and just say that it's okay like you can't just you know like, like that's not a record that anybody wants you know it's you got to well, do a lot of different things in there well yeah you're probably right it probably is and, uh, <laughs> but like the, yeah, so okay yeah. We could come up with an idea, verify it with people that we think we could do it, and then mm. submit it to Guinness. And submit it to Guinness. And that could yeah. be our Earth Day thing next year because, you know, this year we didn't do anything too crazy. 
That would be really fun. We should try to do that. We should absolutely try to do an Earth Day Guinness record. That would be really right. fun. All right, people, we want to hear your ideas. What can we do? Yeah. Yeah. Let us know. Awesome. Well, we solved a problem today. Let's get on to our interview. All right. Sounds good. Hello and welcome back to EPR. Today we have Dr. Kimberly Miner, a climate scientist, joining the show. Welcome, Kimberly. Hi, thanks. So can you give us the elevator pitch on the work that you're currently doing? Sure. So I look at climate change impacts all over the planet and try to get ahead of some of the consequences of what's happening with the change in our climate system. So that looks at tipping points in different ecosystems. Sometimes I'm looking at stuff in the Arctic. Sometimes we're using remote sensing. So there's lots of different ways to look at the problem of climate change and lots of different tools. And I try to do a variety of methods and perspectives. Wow. Yeah. And you, it really is. And you've kind of worked, like you said, you've worked all over the world in absolutely extreme environments from fighting wildfires to camping on glaciers, which is super cool. Did you imagine traveling the world like that when you were a kid? Oh, for sure. No, I chose this career on purpose. This, this <laughs> career is a lot of hiking and a lot of exploration. And um, this is exactly what I wanted to do. It took me a while to get here. It wasn't like I was a kid and I decided to be a climate scientist. Um, but <laughs> right. yes, I'm very excited where I landed. Oh, man. So what was that journey like? How did you get to where you are now? Well, I didn't want to go to college, and then my uh, godmother talked me into it, threatened me into it, you might <laughs> say. And then um, I didn't want to go to grad school, so I took four <laughs> years off and then decided, hey, what I really want to do is fight for the environment. So I went back to grad school, and then I didn't want to go for a PhD. <laughs> I took two more years <laughs> off and uh, worked. And then um, a dear friend of me who convinced me to go to a PhD was going through maps on Google Earth one day in the office, and I ran into him, and he was plotting his trip to go to Mongolia, and he was going to hike a bunch of different things looking for climate signals, and that was it. I was hooked. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, that's really wild, and, and it's, it's really cool to hear, and you, you mentioned how you've gone all over the world, done all kinds of different things. I mean, I'm just going to rattle off like the things that you've done in your in your career here. You were a farmer, beekeeper, firefighter, glaciologist, climate scientist, emergency planner, and many other things, I'm sure. So you say you, you do this from different perspectives. How do those all kind of come together? I guess for me, they're always about the same thing, which is the earth. I've always said that I, I did, would not go out for the astronaut program. I'm really excited about the planet and living on the planet and engaging with it in a bunch of different ways. So I guess the common denominator for all of that is that it, they all focus on really interesting Earth systems. Yeah. So, and but there's got to be something about scientific mysteries that fascinates you, right? Yeah. Any kind of mystery. I'm one of those people who likes watching the mystery shows as well. I love Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. So being able to do the Earth stuff that I love and the mystery stuff which comes together in earth science beautifully, I think is just stunning. Okay. Sherlock Holmes, the movies or the shows? <laughs> no, no. Well, the books, but... The books. Okay. Um, I forgot about those. <laughs> if, wow, we, wow. if we were going to do popular culture, I would probably say the shows. Those are absolutely stunning. The BBC versions. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Nice. It's great. Awesome. So you mentioned your godmother and the friend and these people that have been helping you know, nudge you through your, your career and helping you kind of explore yourself and things that you're interested in. Do you specifically have any role models that have influenced you in your life and your career? I don't know that I would call them role models. I have a lot of mentors, mm -hmm. a lot of people that I really look up to and I um, take their advice very, very seriously. 
I've been really lucky in this way that people who are a little bit further or sometimes a lot further down the path that I want to be on are open to talking about their lives, their experiences, and open to brainstorming, you know, what next steps are like for me. I think that allyship and mentorship is really becoming an important part of my generation science experience. And I'm really trying to make it a part of Generation Z science experience as well, because that that mentorship is absolutely critical. Right. And I think so you mentioned earlier that, you know, you didn't want to go to school. You didn't know when you were little, you wanted to be a climate scientist. I think now there could be, you know, middle school, elementary school kids who are like, I want to be a climate scientist. So do you consider yourself or ever think of of how what you're doing is being a role model for younger women or kids? Yeah, for sure. I'm um, a AAAS If Then ambassador, and there's 120 women who were chosen to be role models in a really lots of public pop culture locations. So on TV, we just had a huge exhibit at Smithsonian, and we're working very, very hard to share what science is, right? That it's not just sitting in a lab like I thought when I was little, and that anyone can do it, that science is something that everyone is able to do. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and it's almost like a a science diplomacy, right? You're taking what you know and giving it out to people all over the world, really. So how do you take like what you do as a climate scientist and give that, teach that to other people who maybe hadn't thought of that perspective or hadn't thought how this influences them? Lots of different ways. I engage in an absolutely huge amount of outreach. So I do a lot of interviews and podcasts like these, at least once a week, usually. Um, (laughs) I have uh, multiple social media accounts, and I try to keep active with those. I've got a pretty good following on some of them. I do outreach on behalf of all the places I work. So UMaine and NASA on their Twitter account, on their Instagram account. I do interviews, I do TV shows, so really working hard to get the (laughs) the message out. And that's all in addition to, you know, peer-reviewed publications and conferences that are to more of a scientific audience. Right, of course. And so climate science, you know, does impact the world in really unique ways. And I think one of the more fascinating ones is what's happening when we lose permafrost. Do you mind kind of walking us through how that can impact everybody in the world? Because it seems like, ah, it's just what's happening up north, but that's not really true. Is it? Yeah. So the poles are super duper important, both the North and the South Pole, right? So the North Pole and the Antarctica is functionally what that means for a lot of different reasons. They keep a lot of systems going, the way that our air moves, our winds move, the way that our ocean circulation moves, the way that some of the biotics, so um, animals and plants move. The poles are really a, a critical part and the fact that they're frozen is a critical part of our stable climate that we've gotten used to in the human times, the Holocene. Mm-hmm. So underlying, you know, 25% of the planet is permafrost, which is this frozen, soily stuff. So it's soil and leaves and sticks mm-hmm. and dead plants and dead material. It's like, a, we call it substrate, just a bunch of different things, and it's frozen. And it's from a really, really long time ago, up to a million years ago to today, it's been there freezing. 
And what's happening is the more that it thaws, the more that the little microbes that live in the permafrost start to wake up and they get hungry and they start eating all the carbon. So all the plants and matter that's left in the permafrost is starting to get warmer. And when they eat it, they fart out methane. (laughs) And in some cases, CO2 is released as well. And that basically means that there could be, and we believe there is, carbon dioxide and methane CH4 gas that's being emitted from the permafrost. And it can be, you know, really, really old permafrost, which means that it's it's functionally carbon from a different period from mm. before humans. Wow. Yeah. And so, okay, so that gets released and then... Gosh, like, what does that even mean for us long term? Is it is it just a, just perpetuating an even faster growing warming of the of the planet? Is that what's going to happen? Well, if you think about the carbon cycle that we have right now, so basically the amount of carbon that goes up into the atmosphere and the amount of carbon that comes down and goes somewhere, whether it's the oceans or plants, is about equal. And then you've got humans starting to put more and more carbon into the atmosphere from fossil fuels, you know, which are functionally liquefied dinosaurs, right? So really, really old. Um, And if you've got this additional burst of permafrost, that's a whole bunch of carbon that's not part of the current system that now is is part of the current system. So it has a potentially destabilizing impact on the atmosphere and everything that's in the atmosphere. So all the oceans and the land and the vegetation. And yeah, it it would have a warming impact if that were to occur. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. Do you see other issues in climate science, things that you're finding out now that we need to start addressing? I mean, I think that could be a whole nother day of podcast. I think there's lots of things that we need to start addressing. I think the most recent IPCC report came out and really shared the urgency um, Mm -hmm. that not only do we need to deal with climate change immediately, we need to start removing carbon from the atmosphere as rapidly as possible because we've already put it way too much up. And something that I've been making sure folks know recently because I'm running into a lot of folks that don't know is that even if we started stopped emitting carbon right now, today, we would still have a lag of emission and warming because of the way that the natural systems deal with carbon for 30 to 40 years. So even if we stopped emitting today, we're still on a warming trajectory. Now, if you can add to that, what if we keep emitting today (laughs) and tomorrow and the next day and the next day? So we're definitely on a very poor trajectory right now, and that is affecting and will affect everything on Earth. Elephants, bees, irises, tulips can affect everything, everything on Earth. Yeah, and it's, and it's really incredible. I think it's one of the biggest challenges with science is it's very slow processes. And so it's it's like you can't see it every day, right? So how do we get people to listen to a message that doesn't it doesn't like it doesn't seem bad right now, right? Like 1 degree changing the temperature of the earth 1 degree doesn't seem bad, but it can have really crazy effects. So how do we what's the messaging? How do we get the messaging to be where people do start taking these measures? Well, I hear you saying it doesn't seem bad, but it seems really, really bad to me. (laughs) We are having stronger hurricanes every year. We're having huge flooding incidents every year. You know what we used to call 100-year floods Mm -hmm. every year. If you remember, there was a tornado recently that went through multiple states, and that was in part a function of the energy and the warmth that was in the clouds. 
I think, you know, there's drying in California, there's wildfires in the east, there's a heat pulse in Portland, there's a freeze in Texas. I think we're definitely seeing the consequences. (laughs) And I think it's very, very easy for the general public to see what's going on. And because of that, you're definitely seeing an increase in interest to the point where, like I said, I'm doing, you know, at least an interview or a talk a week to folks who are interested in finding out more about climate change and kind of what we're in for. Oh, that's, yeah, that's great to hear too. And uh, I have a really important question for you here. So how did you get into the Guinness Book of World Records? <laughs> oh, that's from our um, our Everest expedition. There we go. That's from <laughs> our Everest expedition. The director of the Climate Change Institute at the University of Maine, where I'm assistant professor, Paul Majewski, he invited me to join their expedition that they were doing with National Geographic. And a team went up to the top of Mount Everest, and we sampled that snow for PFAS, which is Teflon and microplastics, Mm -hmm. and found it. And so we got into the Guinness Book of World Records for finding plastic at the highest point on Earth, which is a little (laughs) sad, but, you know, also important to realize that plastic is everywhere, everywhere, everywhere now already. Yeah. And so how do we make, because it does sound kind of wild and crazy to think that it's all the way on Everest. So. So how do we mitigate? So it's up there, right? It's up there now. How do we minimize our reliance on these materials? How do we mitigate the damage that we've already done? I think plastic's a really tough one. You know, plastic is pervasive now. They just found it conclusively in blood and in lung tissue of humans. Mm. We know that it's in every ecosystem on Earth and in our food and water. I think plastic is a really big challenge because it's not very clear yet how to biodegrade it on a large scale. Even though there have been some breakthroughs by some groups, I think that, you know, there's a lot more movement needed in that direction. And, you know, the fact that we're still getting our heads around that it's not really recyclable and that was kind of a misnomer. I think that there's a lot of challenges to deal with around plastic now and in the future. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I definitely agree. Well, climate change, it's tough. Do you ever feel like a little, like it's daunting taking over? How do you stay positive? Oh, I don't. I don't stay positive. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's a I was really to get some tips from you. No, it's a really challenging thing. It's definitely a huge burden on me and my family emotionally and psychologically to be constantly thinking about climate change and constantly dealing with it. I see it as kind of a really helping and altruistic thing to be a climate scientist, whether it's, you know, anyone working in the field has to take on this heavy, heavy burden of what's happening and what's going to happen. And I think we all just deal with it the best we can, you know, whether it's exercising or spending time with friends and family, doing art. We really love to plant trees and flowers and Mm -hmm. make sure that we're part of the solution. But yeah, no, it's a huge burden. It's an absolutely huge burden. Well, good. Well, thanks for sharing that. I think that's probably helpful for people to hear that they're not crazy or, you know, especially early on in their careers, if they're feeling like, oh my gosh, this is depressing to me that they're not alone. So we do always like to talk to our guests about what they do for fun for this specific reason. And I know you've already mentioned hiking, but you also see kayak. So I was curious, uh, like I, um, I'm good with water, but how far out do you go? And then do you go to specific places? (laughs) Well, I went out, so we got a new inflatable sea kayak because sometimes the big ones are hard for me to carry, you know, from the car down to the beach and then put it in by myself. So I got an inflatable one so I can, you know, carry it in by myself and easily go sea kayaking whenever I feel like it. 
I usually try to stay pretty close to the coast because this thing's a little wobbly wibbly. Also, I'm almost certain that it looks like a seal from a space. Right, 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 right. You know, that makes me a tiny bit nervous. Of course. So I do try to skirt the coast pretty closely. And then in Maine, where I went to graduate school, there's a lot of folks who like to paddle the rivers out there as well. So that's a really neat way to engage with kayaking as well. Cool. So Nick works for a Hawaiian company, so I think he would be interested in the um, Honoluki. I don't know how to say the... The Hokalea? Yes. Oh, okay. There oh, go. the Hokalea is... Sure. Okay, so the Hokalea is a sea kayak that a bunch of Hawaiian anthropologists and nativists started working on, I think, a little over 40 years ago to try and regain a lot of the history that they lost through colonialism because the Hawaiians used to be incredible seafarers. I'm sure a lot of people got the impression in Moana that they had incredible star navigation that was just super precise, really strong ecosystem science and ecosystem knowledge culturally embedded. And so the Hokalea is a double-hold canoe that they have now sailed multiple times to Tahiti and all over the world. And they're just about to start another world tour, I think, in 2024. And they are going to sail using star navigation and taking scientific measurements along the way, uh, the whole planet. Wow. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm glad I got to pull that out (laughs) of you. (laughs) I know it sounded really cool. (laughs) That's awesome. So you are you following them like on YouTube or their website or something or social media? Well, last time they they did the world tour, you can follow online. Yeah, they post uh, regularly on social media. I think they had a mapping tool last time, and then they stopped at a lot of institutions on the mainland of the U.S. mainland, including like uh, Woods Hole. This time, we're hopefully going to convince them to come visit us at JPL in UCLA so that we can really make use of some of the excellent science that they're doing from the canoe. Awesome. That's really cool. That's a neat partnership that could potentially happen. And then another fun thing I saw on your LinkedIn that you received what looked like a 3D printed copy of your statue. Is that literally a statue of you? Yeah. So um, the IFSEN initiative that I was talking about, they made statues of 120 of us. And they were premiered on the National Mall in the beginning of March. And we had a huge event. Thousands and thousands of people came. I was answering questions about climate change in my career for eight hours a day, multiple days in a row (laughs) without breaks. It was very exciting. Um, And then they were moved to the Smithsonian Museum for the month. So mine was in the Museum of Natural History for the entire month. And uh, I'm not sure what we're going to do next with the exhibit, but I think there's a lot of interest to move it around the country. Yeah, that's awesome. That helps with the whole role model thing. I love it. Yeah, that was that was the intention. And we had lots and lots of little children come by and learn about our science. That's amazing. It really is. And uh, really glad you got that opportunity because, it's, like you say, it's a way to give back. Yeah. And uh, so Laura and I are also big travel buffs. We love to see the world. And you've gotten to see so much of it. So I'm going to ask you another supremely unfair question. But do you, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> what do you love the most about travel? Oh, about travel? Well, it's it's so different now with COVID. I used to mm. love sitting in the airport and watching people go by and just thinking thoughts and kind of, you know, getting all the energy that from the excitement that everyone was sharing. I find that a little different now. I think for me, it's just extraordinary to think that we're the only place in the universe that we know of that has life. Mm-hmm. But on this planet, we have such an incredible diversity of life. 
So I can go, you know, eight hours away and be in a place where I don't know the language and I don't really understand the food and I don't really know the smells that well. And I just have nothing but learning. Uh I can learn an entirely new way of thinking and being and eating. And it's only eight hours away, which is just (laughs) insane. Yeah. So when I said I was going to ask you an unfair question, I meant to. Um, So the second one is, (laughs) do you have any favorite spots? Yeah, I was worried that was going to be the question. I know, I know, I know. (laughs) I think, I mean, I I think everywhere that I've been has been extraordinary for lots of different reasons. I think it kind of depends because I, I like things for different reasons as far as the ecosystems go. Like I usually really enjoy places because of the kinds of trees or the birds, the butterflies, or, you know, maybe they've got a really nice ocean inlet there. And I think that's always what drives the experience for me is I, I want to make sure that I'm engaging with the local ecosystem at the same time that I'm part of the human culture there. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's great. All right. This has been so much fun and we really appreciate you taking the time to come and talk to us. We know you're super busy and have so many engagements to do and that people can find you everywhere. But is there anything that we didn't get to chat about that you might like to bring up today? I don't think much. Just, you know, I think we talked a little bit about the polls and how they're changing really rapidly and the most recent IPCC report. I just think there's a lot of resources for folks who are interested in learning more about the climate and climate change in general. And I hope that people are able to take advantage of that and really engage themselves so that they understand what we're looking at and what we're facing. Yeah, that's a good point. Do you have any specific, like if you were to point somebody who wants to learn more in a direction, like any specific resources that you particularly like? So we have really great uh, NASA climate change pages, and there's also a NASA kids section of NASA climate change. And so that's really good if you wanted to introduce littler people to what's going on or educate yourself. The the website is really excellent and we just recently updated it. So highly recommend that. Awesome. That's fantastic. And if people want to get in touch with you, where should they go? I have a contact me page on my website. It's drkimberlyrain.com. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. All right. Thanks so much for having me, you guys. And that's our show. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Miner. It was a great time. Be sure to check us out each and every Friday. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Bye. See you, everybody.